Welcome to Observations, podcast from Medical Observer. My name is Annette Catalaris. Thanks for joining me. The silly season is upon us, a time of good cheer and kindness, but also often a time of excesses. So for my last guest of the year, I've invited Professor John Curry to discuss an often devastating yet common condition, addiction, addiction to anything. John is the inaugural director of the National Centre for the Neurobiological Treatment of Addiction, which provides patients with individualised treatment programs based on neuroscience. He is and has been active in many influential policy roles and is currently a member of the Australian National Council on Drugs. Thanks for joining me, John. You're welcome. We know that up to 20% of people have a substance abuse problem or behaviour and that this costs our society about $50 billion in direct and indirect costs each year. So it's common and it's costly, but what is it? Addiction, as we see it, the best definition I know is it's a compulsive seeking and using of a drug or a behaviour such as alcohol uh, or gambling, and it's doing that even knowing the negative health and social consequences. So that means that people do it even though you've told them not to, even though they've been educated not to. The compulsion which arises from the brain drives this behaviour even though they know that perhaps they shouldn't do it, which is why we see it very much as a brain disorder. Uh, And one of the definitions is it's a brain disorder which occurs in a social context and has behavioural manifestations. What that means is that the brain drives the behaviour and the social circumstances in which you live define how often it happens, uh, whether it will happen and how severe it will be and how severely the person and the family will be affected. Okay, so this idea of telling a patient to just say no is not going to work. Exactly. Look, addiction is a medical illness. Um, It's very similar to a lot of our other chronic relapsing disorders like asthma, like diabetes. And what happens is that As you become addicted, the brain changes and the brain drives these behaviours, the compulsive behaviours, very, very hard to switch off just by trying to use psychological means. I mean, we know, for instance, with diabetes and with asthma, compliance with lifestyle changes, even compliance with medication can be very, very low and the relapse rates can be quite high and it is no different with addiction. It is a chronic relapsing disorder. So what you get is episodes of abstinence followed by episodes of relapse. The whole aim of treatment is to make relapse as short as, uh, basically as few relapses possible and trying to get the person not to use the drug for as long as possible but it is very much a chronic relapsing disorder. And our treatment program should be based around this using all the things we know about how to treat diabetes or hypertension or asthma. It really is the same sort of process. Yes, I've, I looked at some American data and I was surprised to see that the rate of relapsing drug addiction is somewhere between 40 and 60%, but the rate of relapse for hypertension or asthma is somewhere between 50 and 70%. And yet as doctors, we often 
often think of ourselves and perhaps our patients even as failing when they relapse when it comes to some sort of addiction. Yes, it, it's, if you like, um, addiction is sort of the last frontier in medicine where we've become very good with dealing with chronic illnesses and knowing that the most important things are retaining people in treatment, setting up long-term treatment programs. But with addiction still, there's this belief that it's really a moral problem and that people are just don't have willpower or they're being greedy or lazy and therefore if they relapse it's sort of their fault not the fact that we as doctors haven't actually got the treatment right so we still have this tremendous belief that people should just be told don't do it don't smoke don't use alcohol um, you know don't gamble and that this will make a difference we know that brief interventions can help in some people, but when you've got a brain disorder, then you really need a combination of medical and psychological treatment together with social support for this to work uh, at its best. And the biggest trouble we face in Australia is that we've got lots of psychological and counselling programs, but very few doctors have the experience to work with medications and with a medical model to get the best results for addiction. Yes, I believe there are only 11 people training in addiction medicine around Australia at the moment. Why do you think that's the case? At the moment, it's very hard to get people to uh, want to do this as a specialty. Uh, my specialty is neurology. There are a few psychiatrists. There are uh, a few general practitioners and there are some gastroenterologists and a few other internal medicine people. The point is that all of these can be great addiction medicine specialists. You can come at it from many, many different aspects. But the knowledge of the neuroscience which lies behind addiction is the thing which I think will make it much more attractive to younger generations of doctors. The fact that you can actually do something, you've got treatments which work, you can develop uh, an understanding of why this happens in a way Addiction is very like psychiatry was you know, 30 years ago when we didn't have the medications and we really talked about it in psychological terms. In addiction, we now recognise major changes occur in the brain. These are genetic, epigenetic. These are the sort of things which can be influenced by modern medical treatment. And therefore, we need modern treatment for addiction, just the same as we have it for cardiac disease, renal disease, and for asthma and diabetes. Okay, so let's talk more about that. Can you just briefly tell us the neuroscience of addiction? Well, what happens with addiction is that the drugs uh, or the behaviours, and we're talking here about gambling, we're talking here about uh, a range of medications, it might be um, the opiates, it might be benzodiazepines, it might be alcohol, uh, ice is uh, a very big one now. So all of these agents influence the brain's reward systems, the dopaminergic reward systems. And what you see happening is initially a sort of impulsive, I like it, it's fun, I get pleasure from it in terms of using these agents or these behaviours. But gradually over time in a subset of people who have a genetic predisposition and whose brains respond to these stimuli, you get actual structural changes in the neurotransmitter systems and even in the actual connections between brain cells themselves, dendritic connections, 
these changes become hardwired. And so the person who develops addiction has a different brain from the person who isn't addicted. And this leads to the compulsive behavior that is I have to have it if I don't have it I get withdrawal um, and the craving the thinking about it it becomes the predominant drive and you'll see this just as much with gambling as you will see it with alcohol that is a brain which is driven to undertake this behavior because of the underlying structures which have changed in the brain. And are they irreversible changes are they does chronic management required or can you actually can the brain heal? No, the brain, the brain is very plastic and what we say is that if you can keep the drug or the behaviour away from the brain for a long enough period, and we're talking here quite prolonged periods, you know, six, 12 months, two years, and this, if you can keep the, uh, the drug away from the brain for long enough, these changes will reverse and you'll have people who can function uh, quite normally. You can have people who don't relapse. But often because of genetic or epigenetic features, there is underlying there always a risk of relapse. So somebody who has a genetic predisposition is much more likely to relapse than somebody who doesn't have that genetic predisposition. Nevertheless, you basically get tremendous results out of treatment if you can keep people in treatment for long enough and you can keep them actively not using the drug, which is why we push so hard for abstinence-based treatments, not because they're morally better, but because they're neurobiologically much better. Okay, I'd like to talk specifically about the drugs in your armamentarian and and when they are of use. Can you just give us some ideas of specific approaches to addictions, you know, be those opiates or benzodiazepines? If you're looking at heroin or prescribed opiates, the first line of treatment is often to substitute uh, buprenorphine or methadone, which is an opiate which replaces the illicit drug which is being used. People stabilise their lives very effectively, reduces overdose, reduces injecting drug behaviour and allows them to become socially stable. Then you need to get the patient off that drug in the long term. And to do that, you need to have effective withdrawal systems because the withdrawal of the opiates can be very uh, uncomfortable. And then you need long-term maintenance, in particular to stabilise craving and to reduce the anhedonia, the flatness, the depression, and the insomnia which occurs after you've stopped using the opiates. For this, we often use naltrexone uh, and other agents which will increase mood and stabilise the long-term patient welfare. If we look at benzodiazepines, these are very, very hard to cease. Usually patients end up on maintenance of low-dose benzodiazepines or doctor shop. One of the striking uh, new treatments which we've been using and which we find very, very effective is to use flumazenil, which is a benzodiazepine antagonist in very low doses as an intravenous or subcutaneous infusion. This is given over a period of uh, four to eight days and and can be very, very dramatic in allowing people to stop using the benzodiazepines to which they're addicted. 
Mm. And there's much of evidence for this treatment. Yes, yes. There's there's good. There's there's uh, interesting randomised studies looking at the use of flumazenil versus the use of slow reduction uh, and taper of benz of oral benzodiazepines. And there's no question that the intravenous flumazenil gives you a tremendous chance of succeeding where slow reduction or tapering doses often fails. Gee, that's quite a treatment revolution. Uh, yes, absolutely. This, uh, to me, this represents one of the most exciting uh, areas of addiction medicine uh, because it targets the neurobiology of the brain and what is going wrong with benzodiazepines and the GABA receptor. And flumazenil has an emerging use, uh, not just with benzodiazepines, but probably in relation to a number of other situations where GABA receptor uh, is pathologic and is not functioning properly. And uh, now Trexone, of course, is used in chronic alcoholism as well. But let's talk about acamprosate. What's the role in, in alcoholism? Um, one of the things we've learned over the last few years is that complexity of treatment is actually uh, a benefit and not a hindrance, and that is using multiple agents will give you much better results than using single agents. If you look at acamprosate, uh, there are two schools of thought. One is that it reduces the glutamate NMDA system, which is overactive in the withdrawal state and in the post-withdrawal state. So it reduces excitatory activity and therefore helps maintain abstinence. Um, when combined with naltrexone, acamprosate is much more effective than when it's used alone. However, a group at the Flory Neurosciences, Andrew Lawrence and his colleagues, have suggested recently that, in fact, the main effect of acamprosate may be through its calcium moiety rather than through its NMDA action in abstinence-based treatment for alcohol. So that's still to be resolved. Nevertheless, the, the fact is that from our point of view, we find that a combination of naltrexone and acamprosate gives you a much better effect in terms of reducing craving and getting better abstinence results than using either one alone. The other medications which we use in alcohol include baclofen, which works on the GABA-B receptor. It's a GABA-B agonist, and that helps to increase uh, abstinence over time. So we will frequently use a combination of naltrexone, campril, acamprosate, and baclofen. A couple of other drugs which are very useful, one of which is topiramate, topamax, uh, is very useful also in damping down craving. And the other interesting one is that the uh, nicotinic action, so in other words, champix uh, and cytosine are both uh, agents which will also decrease craving uh, for alcohol. So there's a wide range of agents which can be used, a number of which are anticonvulsants uh, such as valproate, such as uh, tiagabine, such as vigabatrin, and the other one is lamotrigine. All of these are other agents which are second or third order agents to be used when there are great difficulties switching off craving. So the point is that we have a huge armamentarium that we can add in and work individually in setting up treatment programs for patients which help them remain abstinent. So what sort of abstinent rates are you aiming for? What's success? For, for us, success is, uh, and what we try to gold standard, is a 70%. If we're aiming for abstinence as the primary goal, then we're aiming for 70% abstinence uh, at 12 months. That's what we would hope to see. So we're looking at uh, still a relatively high, that's a 30% relapse rate, but that 30% will not include uh 
relapse only just back to complete return to drinking. It will include intermittent episodes and lapses as well. But 30% sustained, uh, 30% uh, return to some form of drinking versus 70% sustained abstinence is what we would look for basically in any medical program which uh, uses medication and psychological techniques combined. Okay. Are these treatments equally applicable to somebody who is addicted to food or addicted to pornography or addicted to gambling? The the fascinating questions are gambling and uh, obesity. The National Institute on Drug Abuse in the United States has incorporated obesity into its uh, spectrum of addictions and uh, the AMA in America has declared that obesity is a disease. One of the most useful treatments that we actually find in obesity is still um, bariatric surgery. And the question is whether that is actually altering brain function, and it does seem to be doing that. Therefore, combining bariatric surgery with clever pharmacology, which switches off the compulsive craving for food, produces one of the most effective combinations that we've seen for uh, morbid obesity. And this is not necessarily on a population basis, but on an individual basis with people who have major food cravings. There are a number of agents which, when combined, can actually switch off uh, the drive or the appetitive drive to eat or to compulsively eat food. These include naltrexone uh, and, interestingly, Zyban, bupropion uh, in combination, also topiramate, topamax, uh, and um, when used in combination, these agents can often be very effective in reducing the compulsive element of eating in people who have this. Are they in use? In various, it's certainly in the United States, they're in use. Uh, we certainly use combinations like this uh, in people who are having bariatric surgery or people who don't want to have surgery but find they have compulsive eating disorders. And we have uh, you know, very good results using these combinations in selected groups like that. Similarly, in gambling, uh, one of the things we find is that there is a very strong uh, appetitive drive or uh, neurobiologic drive, which is this compulsive uh, nature of gambling. And again, uh, there are a number of studies looking at naltrexone. We will often look at combinations which might include uh, naltrexone, which may also use uh, bupropion and naltrexone or may use naltrexone and camprosate bupropion, topiramate, all of these in individual patients may actually help to switch off this drive uh, towards gambling in those who have what is called problematic or pathologic gambling, which has a very heavy compulsive element. Okay, just for transparency reasons, do you have any links to any pharma companies that are involved in these treatments? No, no. Um, I, I have no links to any of the companies which produce any of these. Most of these agents are um, are actually now off uh, off label 
and uh, therefore, you know, they're not actually of much interest to the drug companies themselves because to get studies up on these would probably outweigh the value of the drug. Nevertheless, in the States, there have been quite a few agents or quite a few combinations uh, which have sought FDA approval. Um, Belvique is one uh, of these. Qsimia is another one. Uh, these are products which are available as combinations of agents which we don't have available here in Australia or which include... Um, uh, agents which we use but in formulations which we don't have available yet. So every day clinicians see the comorbidities of addiction and mental health disorders. What's the relationship? We see this as a very simple answer. They are part of the same spectrum disorder. Almost every patient that we see with an addiction problem also has an underlying mental health issue be it depression, anxiety, sometimes attention deficit disorder, uh, sometimes a more severe psychosis. But there are common brain mechanisms which underlie many of the addiction and mental health problems that we see. And really the two need to be managed together. They need to be diagnosed together by the same uh, health team. They are not separate disorders. We find that so many of our patients with an addiction are actually self-medicating to try and treat an unrecognised mental health disorder. So we essentially work to treat both of these together, the mental health issue and the addiction issue, not to separate them or send them to different centres or have different diagnostic procedures. So amphetamines would be a good example of that? Amphetamines are an excellent example of this because many of the patients we find using long-term chronic amphetamines are actually self-medicating for an attention deficit disorder, often which has been missed uh, in childhood or at school. And the patients themselves find that the amphetamine is acting much as uh, a medical treatment for their attention deficit disorder. Okay, and just on a personal note, what made you give up neurology and take on addiction medicine? I've never given up neurology. This is the best neurology I've ever done. Um, I, I, yes, I don't do mainstream neurology anymore, but this is behavioural neurology at its purest. It's uh, the most exciting field I could imagine being in because we're actually making immense differences using neuroscience knowledge. It's just incredible to see what the addition of uh, medical knowledge to counselling or uh, other forms of treatment in addiction can make, particularly when it's neuroscience-based. And so this has actually uh, been uh, the best and most exciting set of neurology I could have done uh, in my life, I think. Okay, and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And I wish you well in your work. Thank you. And thanks all of you who have joined me this year. If you'd like to comment or make a suggestion, please leave your thoughts in the comments section of this podcast. Thanks especially to Stefan Soika, our patient and skillful sound engineer. I wish you a safe and relaxing festive season and I hope that you'll join me, Annette Catalaris, again next year for more observations, podcast from Medical Observer. Music